Amen. I need to drink something. How are the smoothies today? You guys get some? That is an awesome ministry. That's exciting. Uh, God is going to take this ministry. Like Pastor Mina is saying, that bears witness in my spirit that this is a city of creativity and God's going to do a whole lot of that through this ministry. There is so much creativity inside of each and every one of us having been made in the image of the creator. We are not creators. We are creative because we've been made in his image. And there is so much that God wants to release through each one of us. And so to see, uh, to see that through, through Nobel and what God's given him, the dreams and vision he's given him, that is awesome. So that, uh, I hope you enjoy the smoothies. I'll enjoy one later if, if Noble will make me one sometime. Appreciate that, Noble. <laughs> uh, yeah, as Pastor Caleb uh, mentioned, my name is Pastor John. I'm the worship pastor at New Philadelphia Church. New Philadelphia, New Philadelphia Church has three campuses. And uh, this is a brand new campus starting this year. And it's, it's just been a real privilege and joy coming down here uh, to just simply be with you guys. And, uh, and then from that place to, to be a, part, a small part of what's going on, to ministering, to see God grow the worship ministry in this place. If you've been around New Philadelphia Church for basically any length of time, you'll notice there's, there's something a little bit different about New Philadelphia's worship than most churches, okay? Uh, I heard last week was an awesome time of praise with Mark Yu. Was it good? I heard great things, and, uh, and today I had a really good time worshiping with you, and it's, it's a bit more extravagant, it's a bit more exuberant than most churches that at least I've experienced. Do you guys have the same kind of experience? Uh, okay, if you came to the retreat about a month ago, it was a little bit crazy. Uh, we had uh, our main speaker got up on stage, started rapping, and uh, it was, uh, there's a video of it, you can check it out if you weren't there, but, but it's a core value that God has placed deep inside of us. New Philadelphia Church has nine core values. The very first one is to be extravagant in worship. We keep that dear in our hearts. We want to worship the Lord well. And worship in a, in a manner worthy of, of who he is and what he's done. And at New Philadelphia Church, we see that growing more and more and more. And this is not something that I grew up with. But I'll tell you a bit about my upbringing. Don't let this shock you. For some people, it's more shocking than other people. I am ethnically Mennonite. Okay, I don't know if that means something to you. To most Americans, that means something like Amish. Uh, if you know Amish people, you have some sort of pictures of Amish in your mind. The, you know, the cart and the buggy and the, and, and the horse and the black clothes and the black rims on the, the, the cart, that sort of thing. Uh, my ethnicity is Mennonite. It's a little bit different than Amish, but it's actually kind of connected. I grew up in, uh, in a very conservative style of worship. I wasn't actually at a Mennonite church, but I had Mennonites all around me. Uh, both my parents are, are Mennonite. And, uh, and I grew up without having any kind of experience of like extravagant, exuberant, you know, expressive praise. Mennonites are really good at singing. They're, they're actually very, like a lot of Mennonites are very musical. Uh, you guys know Starfield? 
uh, Christian band, some of the Starfield the guys from Mennonite. I uh, just give a shout out to Starfield in case they're listening to this podcast. Uh, but anyways, uh, but one thing that Mennonites are not typically known for traditionally is is expressive praise. You'd go to church, you pull out your hymnal, and you sing from the hymnal, and you don't move your body because that would be going overboard. Uh, I, the church that I grew up in was a bit more liberal. Uh, we would, you know, some people would occasionally, I mean, we, have, we actually had overhead projectors. Uh, I think that we've got PowerPoint at my home church now in Canada. But uh, you, you could raise your hands in praise, and there's, a, there's been a slight movement. But, but in general, I did not grow up with expressive praise. So coming to New Philadelphia Church has been in some ways, over time, was stretching for me. The first time I came a few years ago, I was a little bit shocked by, you know, how much people would dance around and move and be a little bit crazy in the presence of the Lord. And, and over time, I grew to like it. I grew to think, man, that, that's actually okay. I don't fully understand it. It's not part of my experience growing up, but I, I kind of like it. And what we're learning about expressive praise, expressive worship, and extravagant worship is that while other parts of the church would look at New Philadelphia Church and they would kind of categorize it as charismatic, right? New Philly is, is a charismatic church. It's one of those churches, right? That is a little bit, you know, they're just, you know, they're okay, but they're just, they're different because they're so expressive that way. And they would they would call us charismatic. And when some people, they ask us, well, what kind of church is New Philly? We tend to say, well, we're kind of a charismatic church. You know, we, uh, we do things with, with a lot of expression and we're kind of out there that way. But what we're learning is simply that the worship at New Philly that we experience and that we strive for is not really charismatic, but it's normal. It's simply worship. It's not charismatic. It's not, you know, crazy. It's just worship. It's just what the Lord is calling us to do. And when I talk about worship, I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about worship. This is my last opportunity to be here for a while. And as a worship pastor, I want to really take that opportunity to talk about something that I love, that being worship. And when I talk about worship, I mean more than just music, okay? Music is a significant part of worship. You know, you've got worship albums and worship leaders and worship conferences and worship songs and that sort of thing. But worship is, is actually much broader than that. Worship is, is really, it encompasses all of, of life in some form or another. What Romans 12 says, it says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It says, worship actually looks like, in a, in a spiritual or reasonable sense, offering everything you have, every part of what you are. If you want a simple definition, this is my favorite definition of worship, because I like simple things. Worship is simply our loving response to who God is and what he has done. And that can take any form, basically. Our loving response to who God is and what he has done. That's worship. And Romans 12, what it says is to offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, in the NIV it says, spiritual act of worship. In other translation it says, uh, reasonable act of worship. Uh, there are a few different words, but the Greek word there, very interesting, is the Greek word logikos. Okay, that's the word that's used for spiritual. To offer everything you have is your logikos act of worship. And you can probably guess what English word we get from the Greek word logikos. Logical. In view of what God has done, who he is and what he has done, Romans 12 says, the only logical thing to do is to offer everything. It's, it's reasonable. When you consider who God is and what he's done, there's only one logical response. I'm a logical person. I like to think. I, like to, uh, I liked math growing up. I liked you know, proofs and that sort of thing. I like to have a reason for doing what I'm doing. Do you guys like to have reasons for doing? I don't like to be told, just do it. Because, you know, I like to know this is why I'm doing it. And there's no greater reason to worship God than because of who he is and what he's done. And that's everything. I couldn't give enough. I couldn't give, I couldn't go overboard in worship. It's actually not possible. Because God is of infinite worth, of infinite value. And what he's done for us is of infinite worth and infinite value. You there? That makes sense? Okay, so expressive, exuberance, extravagant worship is not the exception. It should not be the exception. That should actually be the norm. That's what I'm driving at right now. That is the norm that we should see in the church. And to drive that home a bit more, I want to turn to 1 Samuel 6 in your Bibles. Please turn there. We're going to look at a couple of extravagant expressions of worship in the Bible that are actually seen as relatively normal. Okay? 1 Samuel 6. This is a story about King David. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 6. Wrong book. Second Samuel 6, we're going to start at verse 14. But the background to the story is that King David, king of Israel at this time, is, uh, is bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. That's a big deal because the Ark of the Covenant was this box, essentially, which symbolized the presence of God. And in a certain sense, it contained the presence of God. We know that God can't be contained in a box, but in this, in a certain sense, the presence of God existed and dwelt in this box. Okay, and King David's going to bring that box into the capital city, the holy city of Jerusalem, and he's really excited about that. Okay, so verse fourteen. Follow with me. It says, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. That's King David's wife. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. So, you've got David bringing in this box with the priests carrying it into the, into the holy city, Jerusalem. And David, as the king of the people, takes off his kingly clothes, puts on a linen ephod. He's basically, you'll find out later as, as Michal's wife expresses, he's basically naked. He's with like very little clothes on. And he's dancing in front of a box with all of his might and all of his strength. Get a picture of this, okay? David is, he's the king of the nation. He disrobes. He starts dancing in front of the box. I don't know if that makes sense. If that's a little bit strange, if, if something doesn't quite add up there, if you could think of the leader of your own nation, wherever you're from, Okay, whatever that might be, uh, you know, in, in Korea, we've got President Im Young Park, you know, dancing before the whole nation with all his might. What would that look like? That, I mean, it would be kind of a crazy scene. Uh, Barack Obama, you know, he just like takes off his clothes, and starts dancing, you know, and he's, he's more of a, like a people person than a lot of other presidents. So he, you know, maybe a little bit less of a stretch for him. But whatever your, whatever your president, whoever your president is, I don't know. Could you imagine that? I mean, it's kind of a bizarre scene. Okay? And then you get to verse 20. David's going to come home now after this incredible day of worshiping. Verse 20 says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So his wife, he comes home, he's going to bless the house. That's kind of what they did at that time. They came home and they said a blessing over the house and the people there. And, and his wife comes to him and says, basically, what were you thinking? Are you crazy? Did you lose your mind? Are you or are you not the king of Israel? What were you doing? out there, right? She, she tears into him, okay? And how does David respond to that? Does he get defensive? Does he like say, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, 
you know, mean to get that carried away or anything like that. He says, he basically responds to her by saying, what? What? That? That? That, that was nothing. Well, you saw me, that, that, no. No, if you, you haven't seen crazy yet. Let me show you crazy. I will become more undignified than this, and then you can call me crazy. He's saying, that, that was nothing. I was just responding to what God was doing. I was just celebrating with what made sense to me. That, to me, was the logical response to what God was doing. The world called David crazy. But David said, that's actually normal. That is logical. That is reasonable. That's worship. That, that, that's, that's worship right there. What the world calls crazy, what the church calls charismatic, God says that's just normal. That's, what, that's how you worship. Okay? Another example. We, won't need to, we don't need to turn there uh, at this point, but I'll just give you a story. John 12. Actually, turn there. Might as well. John 12. Great, great story. Okay, looking at verse 1, just the first seven verses, first eight verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So you have this woman named Mary, whom Jesus knew pretty well, and she had a jar of very expensive perfume. This jar was so expensive, it was worth approximately a year's wage, a year's wages at that time. Okay, so in, in our, you know, for a Hagwan teacher or whatever, maybe $20,000, 20 million won or 25 million won, or whatever it might be. You got this, this jar of perfume that's worth that much money. And this woman comes up to Jesus while he's reclining at a table. He's having a meal. And, and she actually shouldn't have been there. This was a meal for men at that time. Women weren't allowed in the room to just come and, and, and be with the men in that context. And she decides she's going to come in there, take her jar of perfume, break it open, and pour the whole thing on Jesus' feet. That, to most people, would seem crazy. That would seem ridiculous. That would seem like a waste. And that's what Judas says to Jesus. 
why could she not have sold that for like in that in, in our context like thirty thousand dollars whatever twenty thousand dollars and done something and helped the poor on the streets or built an orphanage or do one of these like great things for the kingdom of God why couldn't she have done that he's basically saying to Jesus Jesus what were you thinking letting her do that are you crazy and Jesus, all, all he responds in saying is, leave her alone. What she's done is beautiful. Jesus doesn't say, man, that's, you know, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Really, he says, she's done something beautiful. In essence, she, he's saying, she gets it. She understands. She's on her way. She's in the right direction. She's, she's getting this. That's worship. That's not, by heaven's standards, that's not extravagant worship. You know, when, when heaven looks down on it, a quote-unquote charismatic meeting, heaven isn't really inspired by the meeting down here. I don't know if you ever think about that. It's not like they are getting ideas from us for how to worship God. We get ideas from heaven. We read like the book of Revelation. We say, wow, that's how they do it up there. Maybe we should incorporate some of that here. For them, it's, it's a beautiful act. And they're saying, she gets it. She understands it. This is worship. This is what I call my people to. What the world calls a waste, what the world calls excessive, God simply calls worship. It's worship for us. The thing we need to understand about worship is that worship is always... A response you can't worship who you don't know you can't worship who you haven't seen and you can only worship to the extent by which you have seen and known something or someone okay if God has done something small for us then it would be logical for us to do something small in response, in worship. But if God has done something great for us, then our expression of worship should match that, if possible. And it's not, actually. Because we can't actually get to that point. Worship is always a response. If it's something small, the response is small. If it's big, the response is big. Think about the Korean national soccer team. Okay, some of us are Korean, some of us are not. But if the Korean national soccer team had like an international friendly match against, like, well, I'm, I'm thinking about the other end. I'm thinking about this. Who's, who's a country that, that's not very good with soccer? Which one? Not for, sorry? Qatar, really? Okay, Qatar? I don't know. It's possible. Korea would win. Okay, that, that's where I'm getting at. That, that's it. Uh, if Korea is playing a match against Qatar, it's just an international friendly, and they win that match, maybe like 1-0, 2-0, whatever it might be, then the people watching that match 
they would probably clap and they say, good job, Korea, you won the match, okay? We, we applaud you, good job, let's go to bed, basically. But if you have Korea, the national team, playing in the World Cup against, say, Brazil, and in the World Cup, they beat Brazil, could you imagine what would go on in this nation? Do you have any concept of what would happen? I don't know how many people, probably not many, experienced World Cup 2002. Some people were here when they beat Italy in the quarterfinals, right? And I wasn't here. I came just like a few months after that for my first time to Korea. But the pictures I saw, the video you see of like City Hall in Seoul, they go crazy. I never seen people go crazy so much as when Korea beat Italy in the quarterfinal. Uh, because Koreans love to, like, it's Uri, it's like we celebrate together, you know, we chant together, all these sorts of things, very powerful that way. And so that's the kind of thing, if it's something small, then the response is going to be small. If it's something great and incredible, the response is naturally going to be something incredible. So the question is, what has God done for you? Has God been good to you? Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, God has been good to me. Okay, do we, do we believe that? Are we feeling that? Has God been good to us? Like God, God has been good to me. We worship God primarily because of who he is. But beyond that, I'm going to focus on this, what God has done. We worship him because of what he has done for us. So what has he done for us? First of all, primarily, he has saved us, Right? salvation. Foundationally, that's what we look at. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us in the kingdom of the son he loves. We were bound for hell. We were dead in our sins. We were hopeless. We were helpless. We had no chance. No chance, the Bible says. And in that place, God rescued us through his son, Jesus, on the cross. He has saved us. And I don't know if you ever think about where you would be or what you were doing if it were not for Jesus. Do you guys ever think about that? What, what would I be doing? Where would I be if it weren't for Jesus intervening in my life and changing me completely? I want you all to be thinking about that right now. Where would I be if it were not for Jesus. I asked this question to Pastor Caleb, your campus pastor, last night. He told me, John, I would be homeless. Okay? <laughs> that was the answer he gave me. And he said I could share it, so I, I did share it. Uh, but where would you be? What would your life look like? What kind of non-Christian person would you be like if you weren't a Christian? For myself, I think about non-Christian John Newfeld. Okay? <laughs> What does is, what is non-Christian John Newfeld look like? And I think, I think I would probably still be a pretty respectful person. I would be like, I would, and for me, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult because I grew up in a Christian family and became a Christian at a very young age. I don't have this massive, like, backslidden, you know, testimonial story. Uh, but I would have, I think I would be a pretty respectful person. I would be, um, you know, one of those people you see, I think, who, uh, who you know they're not a Christian, but you can't tell that much on the outside. 
on the outside, they look pretty good, right? I think I'd be that kind of non-Christian. And, and I, would, I would likely be striving desperately for the approval of man. Not on the outside where people could see, but on the inside. I think I would be pretty depressed. I would be stressed out. And ultimately, I'd be miserable. I'd be without hope. Because Christ has given me so much hope. He's filled my heart with hope. I'm a prisoner of hope. I can't help it anymore because of what Jesus has done. But if it wasn't for Jesus, I would be hopeless. I would be a hopeless case. I would, yeah, that, that's me. You guys have a picture of, of where you would be if it wasn't for Jesus? I think about sometimes, I actually, I have a cousin who is a few weeks older than me. We're the same age, very close uh, in terms of when we were born in the year. I was born into a Christian family. She was not. And we're very similar people in terms of our personality. But I often have wondered, if we were switched in our positions, what would my life look like if I grew up in her family and she grew up in my family? You know, if I didn't have the grace of being brought up in a Christian family and parents who, who sowed that into me, what would you look like? I would, I would actually, I would love to take time to have like a discussion section at this point because I'm, because I'm preaching, we're not going to. But I want you to take that home and I want you to discuss it with other people when you go. Like, where would you be if it wasn't for Jesus? We like to, the thing is, we like to focus in this ministry on where we're going more than where we've been. We don't like to wallow in our past and say, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, that sort of thing. But it's important to remember where we were because that helps us to understand where we're going. Okay? The Lord has saved you. He's rescued you from the dominion of darkness. and He's given you hope everlasting. Okay? He's saved you. The second thing, what has God done for you? What has God done for me? He's poured out all sorts of grace into my life. Grace upon grace upon grace. When I consider my life, when I, I think about, you know, what God has given me, I just see blessing and I see grace. I consider my wife who's not with me today, which makes me a little bit sad. Uh, but I feel like I have the best wife in the world. And I was having this conversation with Pastor Aaron uh, maybe a month ago or so. And, and I told Pastor Aaron, who's the lead pastor's wife and uh, also lead pastor in this church, I said, Pastor Aaron, I feel like I have the best wife in the world. And she said, John, you mean you feel like you have the best wife in the world for you? And I thought about it. I said, no. I feel like I have the best wife in the world, you know? And, uh, and she's, she's incredible. She's a gift from the Lord. And I think about all the other blessings that God's brought into my life. I think about the job that I have that I'm able to exercise gifts that God's given me. I think about the apartment I have in Seoul. That's, it's a great apartment. It's got everything that I, I wanted in an apartment. It was just God opened a way for us to have that. I think about you know, the church family that we have here at New Philly and how blessed we are. I think about my, my family back in Canada and how blessed I am to have them. I'm a blessed, blessed man. God continues to pour out blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace on my life. 
He's done great things for me. If I actually consider that, it rises up in my heart. My heart rises up in praise naturally because that's the only logical thing to happen is to praise the Lord because it didn't come from me. I didn't earn it. Everything I have is ultimately from the Lord, so I praise him for it. In response, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your logical act of worship. Okay, so we're saved. And God's poured out grace. Can you, can, you've been thinking about what kind of grace God's been pouring out in your life, right? Be thinking about that as I share about my life. Think about your life as well and what God's been doing for you. Another thing that I praise the Lord for, and I can't help praising him for, is simply that he has given me access into his very presence whenever I want to be there. Through the blood of his son Jesus, he has made a way for me to be in the very presence of God anytime I want, anywhere in the world that I am. Is that incredible? To me, that's like the most incredible thing I could think of. I can, right now, I could just close my eyes, bam, I can be in the presence of God. Because in a spiritual sense, which means in actually a real sense, I am positioned right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Ephesians 1 says. That's actually where I am. Actually, Ephesians 2 says that. That's where I am right now. And I can... Anytime, anywhere, I can just be there enjoying him. We're told to actually approach his throne of grace boldly, with confidence. Do it. Don't just go there from time to time. Go there all the time. Live your life there. Just be there in the presence of God. That causes my heart to rise up in praise. Thank you, Lord. You let me be with you. Okay, those are three things. Here's, here's a fourth thing. And this is one of those things that you never get to the end of. Simply that God has given us all of the promises of the Bible to lay claim to all the time. Every promise of the Bible is yes and amen in Christ for you right now. It's not a tomorrow thing. Right now, the promises of Christ are yes and amen. That gives me some joy. I don't know if it gives you joy. It gives me some joy. Some promises. He's going to finish the work that he started in me. Philippians 1 says. He's never going to give up on me. For all of my mistakes, for all of my failures, every time I mess something up, God will never give up on me. He is going to be faithful to finish the work that he started in me. Amen? He's promised never to leave me, never to forsake me. I can't go anywhere where God will not be. He's never going to let me down. I can always trust, always depend on him in all things at all times. He's going to provide for all of my needs according to what? His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I've got needs. You all have needs. And God is promising to meet those needs, not just to the bare minimum, not just to get you by. 
He's promised to provide you with everything you need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You can't get beyond that. God couldn't have a more extreme statement to stay. He couldn't make a more extreme, you know, promise to you than that, really. Like, you could think, as the Holy Spirit prompts the Apostle Paul to write the book of Philippians, you know, thinking, what can I cause Paul to write that will convey my commitments to my people? You know, all of, I, I'm going to give them, meet their needs to the, according to the glorious riches of, I guess I can only say Christ Jesus because there's nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing beyond him, right? He couldn't make a bigger statement. My needs are fully met. I'm fully satisfied in Christ in all things, at all times. And he promises in Romans 8 to work good in everything for me. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I can't lose. I can't screw up so badly that God can't turn it around not to just get even, but for good. Because when God turns something around in your life, he doesn't turn it around just so you get back to even. He turns it around so it can be multiplied for your good every time. Every time. You can't lose. These are promises that are yes and amen, set and firm for you in Christ. Has God been good to you? God, God has been good to me. And so when we worship the Lord, we worship the Lord always in response to who he is and to what he's done. Nothing less than that. If God has done something small for us, then we worship him by doing something small for him. Basically. If God has done something great for us, then we worship him in great ways, in abundant ways. As Matt Redman writes, our worship is the overflow of a forgiven soul. It's not something that we have to conjure up. It's not something that we have to strive for or strain for. It's just the natural response. It's the, the logical overflow of what God has done for us. It's the most logical thing in the world. And here's the thing about worship and praise in particular. That Psalm 22 says that God inhabits the praises of his people. When you praise God, God exists everywhere on earth, everywhere in the universe. That's God's omnipresence. There's no place in the universe where God is not. But God manifests his presence in certain places at certain times for certain things. And the Bible says he will manifest his presence. He will draw near. He will dwell inside of the praises of his people. When you begin to praise God in response to who God is and what he has done, he manifests his presence. He draws near in that place. And when he draws near in that place, you begin to see him and you begin to feel him. And guess what? When you begin to see him and you begin to feel him, you begin to respond more. And when you respond more, he begins to draw near to you and then it's an upward cycle from there. You praise the Lord. He reveals himself to you. You praise him more. He reveals himself more. You praise him more. He reveals himself more. And you just go upward. 
And as you do that, the Bible says he'll transform you. With unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, he's transforming us from glory to glory. If there's one thing that we should ever want to get good at on earth, it's simply to worship the Lord and to, to worship him well. Because, you know, in, in heaven, there will be a lot of things that we won't do that we're doing now. But the one thing we will do for eternity is, is worship the Lord. We were created to worship. And that worship is only the logical response, the logical overflow and outflow of what God, who God is, and what he has already done for us and what he continues to promise to do for us. Amen? Amen. What I want to do right now is something a little bit different. Uh, I want everyone to take out a piece of paper and a pen. And on this piece of paper, what I want you to do is simply to start counting your blessings. Just start listing them, as many as you can think of. What has God done for you? If you're having trouble, just ask the Lord to show you, and he will show you. God likes to remind us that he's good. Let me pray. Father, thank you. God, when we consider who you are and what you've done, God, for us, we simply say thank you. We say thank you and our hearts rise up in praise, God, because that's just naturally what happens, God. When we consider how good you've been to us and how you've led us into the fullness of freedom and life through your son, Jesus. So awaken our hearts to your goodness day by day, God. Keep us counting our blessings that we would praise you and worship you more and more and better and better. We want to worship you in a manner worthy, God, of who you are and what you have done. Nothing less than that, God. We want to worship you well, God, because you've done absolutely everything for us, God. We praise you, God, and we worship you in response. And we do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet. We're going to sing a song of praise.